my name is Melanie Rayner, and I am the ministry director at Christ Presbyterian Church in Cool Springs. Welcome to week seven of our study in First and Second Peter. I hope this journey has been as fulfilling and encouraging and challenging to you as it has been to me. These books are so full of wisdom for our current moment, and it has been a real gift to study them together. Last week, we talked about 2 Peter chapter 1 and Christ-likeness, and how when we are called to be God's people, we are called to develop and imitate the qualities of Jesus. Our lives are living monuments to the person and the work of Christ, and it's our part of our role to point others to the overwhelmingly good news of the gospel. This week, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2, which is not the easiest chapter in the Bible. Peter's tone takes a sharp turn here, and he makes some really strong statements against the influence of false teachers. It's an important conversation to have now, just as it was in Peter's time. But to fully understand our context, it's helpful to understand it in its original context as well. Specifically here in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking about false teachers who claim to be a part of the church, but who deny the saving work of Jesus. They don't deny Jesus or his existence, but rather the notion that Jesus had to die for them. But it's not as simple as that, because that belief has a domino effect into so many other areas of doctrine and into how we live our lives as followers of Jesus, as the people of God. Let's talk for just a second about two kind of big words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is what we would consider to be right belief, while orthopraxy is the right action that flows out of those beliefs. Our orthopraxy is the outflow of our orthodoxy. Or to put it more simply, our actions flow out of our beliefs. When we believe false things, we act out of those beliefs. But it, it's more nuanced than that. It isn't as black and white as, say, me putting an address into my phone and believing Siri will take me to the right place so I do what she tells me to do and turn when she tells me to turn. We aren't robots. We're not programmed by God to act in a certain way. Our lives, our decisions, our orthopraxy is full of nuance and shades of gray, which is why it is so incredibly important to read about false teachers and to learn to recognize patterns in our own behavior. Peter gives us four clues about these false teachers in the first three verses of chapter two. First, they will be among us. Second, they deny the master who bought them, Jesus. Third, they follow sensuality. And fourth, they are motivated by greed. I want to break down each of those ideas a little bit and get into Peter's world, and then we'll examine how susceptible we are to false teachers, too. This can be a bit of a tricky conversation to have. When does false teaching become heresy? How does our sin nature, the innate proclivity in us to do the opposite of what God says, relate to false teaching or false beliefs? When we have a discussion about what we believe to be true— and how often we actually just act the opposite of what we know to be right. Like, does that make us heretics? Does that make us false teachers? Or does that just make us sinners? Even Paul said, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So let's just get this out right on the table to start. We're not perfect. 
We will never have perfect orthopraxy or right actions ever. So we're going to talk about some sticky things today. And when you get into your groups, you'll be talking about these things, about sensuality and sexual sin, greed, financial exploitation. And we're all guilty of all of those things. But being guilty of those things does not make us false teachers. It doesn't make us heretics. It makes us sinners saved by grace. Where we slip across the line is the first thing that Peter said. It's when we stop denying the work that Jesus did. When we start to think, God doesn't really mean that Jesus had to die for my sin. What is sin anyway? Does it matter? I just want to do what makes me happy. Who gets to decide what sin is and what sin isn't? That's the slippery slope that we need to avoid. I hope that's helpful context that puts us all on the same page. But what I don't want to do is soften Peter's words because these are very real temptations to believe. There are false teachers everywhere today who are making the same claims as the false teachers in Peter's day. So Peter's words really matter. There are two primary themes that Peter ascribes to these false teachers throughout chapter two. They are motivated by sensuality and greed. So first, let's talk about sensuality. In verse two, Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is not a word that we use much today. So here's what it really means. The Greek word here is asalgia. It means, according to the Greek lexicon that I was using, living without any moral restraint, licentiousness, lustful indulgence, especially as indecent and outrageous sexual behavior which that definition packs a bigger punch than sensuality, doesn't it? Now, I want you to stop and think for a second about whether this is an issue today. Are there influencers within culture or teachers within God's church or any other sphere who are talking about this that are attempting to reconcile this sensuality, this asalgia with the teachings of scripture? Now, stop and think about how you are processing that word and its definition. It's easy to jump to the banner issues of our current culture, LGBTQI advocacy, gender fluidity, polyamory, and more. But that's not the topic of conversation for us here today. And I would encourage you in your groups to keep your discussions rooted in this passage of scripture and application to your own hearts. Because the reality is we're all prone and tempted to the sins of licentiousness and lustful indulgence. It can be easy to read this passage and think about these kind of meta narratives that are happening in our culture today without ever letting scripture examine our own hearts and our own proclivities to this sort of sin. Lustful indulgence is a phrase that doesn't have to mean actions, but thoughts. And so the question is, when you are faced with it, whose authority do you appeal to for resolution? The authority of Christ, who said to deny yourself and follow him? Christ, who made your body a temple? Christ, who loves you, flaws and fears and all? Or false teachers, culture, the world, who offer permission to indulge? 
I read an article this week by Hannah Anderson, a writer in Christianity Today, that explored some of these nuances of sensuality and sexual temptation. She was specifically discussing attraction outside of marriage, which I actually think is a really useful example to illustrate what Peter is trying to accomplish in his warning here. She writes, how do we pursue faithfulness in a culture that elevates desire over everything? The question is not whether we will be attracted to someone other than our spouse, but rather what we will do when that happens. How will we respond? Not when we are unhappy, but when we think we could potentially be happier. To walk in a holy, healthy sexual ethic, writes Dorothy Greco, we must refute misguided teaching and recognize when culture is leading us astray. The temptation of false teachers that Peter warns us about in 2 Peter 2 is very real because of the, they appeal to some of the most normal temptations to sin that we feel as humans. The question is, when we are God's people, how do we respond? Who do we listen to? Who's our authority in this situation? The second quality Peter assigns to the false teachers is their greed motivation, that they are teaching and influencing from their own desire for more, more power, more money, etc. Looking back to 2 Peter chapter 1, we see a contrast with his description of true teachers. In verses 19 through 21, he writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the specific contrast that we see in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. What we see here is that when we are sifting through influencers, through the authors and writers and teachers that we learn from, what is their goal? Who is their North Star? Is it Christ and his glory? The discernment that Peter is calling us toward is one of the heart. I like the word desire that Hannah Anderson used as a bright line, as a benchmark for evaluating whether the inputs into our life are godly or worldly. Is our desire for more of Christ or more of what the world tells us we deserve? More sex, more money, more fame, more stuff, more power. Who do we belong to? As the people of God, we belong to Christ. Another way Peter describes the false teachers is that they even deny the master who bought them. If we don't need Jesus, then we certainly don't need sanctification, growth in Christ, discipleship. We don't need orthodoxy or doctrine. But when we look to Jesus, when we are called to be the people of God, we need right beliefs to lead us toward right living. Will we always live rightly? No. But we have Jesus, whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may be partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter warns us about the cost 
of following false teachers in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, in those verses that I just recited from 3 and 4, he reminds us of the truth, the right belief. We belong to God. That Jesus has done the work on our behalf. We are reminded that God has called us, redeemed us, and secured our faith and future through the work of Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear, even when we mess up. We should be on guard against false teaching, but we shouldn't be afraid. So how do we live as God's people in the face of false teachers? We are, by our knowledge of scripture and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, able to discern their message from the true gospel to which we should always cling. The Indelible Grace hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, has been a great comfort and encouragement to me during this study. It reminds me of the grace and mercy of Jesus. The chorus is so simple. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is enough, friends. There is no need to look for more fulfillment or satisfaction from the world, from the things that we desire, from the things that culture and false teachers tell us we should desire, from money, from sex, from influence, from perfection. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for us. We belong to him. Cling to that this week. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it's hard to hear, God, and we just pray that your word will do its work in us. We know that it is a double-edged sword. We know that it is living and active and that it has the power to change us, shape our desires to be more like Christ and protect us from false teachers. In your name we pray. Amen.